brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ our Lord, I keep hearing ringing in my ears, not just my tinnitus, but the words of letter the Hebrew, don't get carried away with strange teaching. My goodness, these words have rang true since the day they were penned, getting carried away with strange teachings. And of course, this is the foundation which would bring about the various ecumenical councils to refute these strange teachings. And this Sunday, we commemorate the seventh ecumenical council, the council defending the orthodoxy of icons. I, for one, have always wanted to make myself feel and make myself aware that I'm in the presence of God. The longest time I can remember, even as a little boy with a glow-in-the-dark wall cross, I would have on my bed. I wanted to feel close to Him. And of course, our Lord knew my longing. The longing that is innate into each and every one of us. He planted it there. But, with the fall... We forgot about all of that. And God, as we know, sets into motion the whole plan of salvation. Of course, the great achievement, the great vehicle that would be carried uh, the people through was, was the meeting tent and the, and the liturgy that took place there, the sacrifices. And if you remember in the Decalogue, you're not to have any graven images. Remember that? No graven images except there was one little exception, a small thing. And it was such a unique thing that it was entirely covered with gold. And if that wasn't enough, there were cherubim placed upon the top with the wings facing, and they're facing each other and the wings going towards each other over the place where the mercy seat was, the kapareth, the place of expiation. So there was allowed this place where the invisible God would dwell and speak with Moses and teach the people. You had this invisible, this spot of emptiness, which was for the place of the invisible God flanked on each side by unseen angels in the image of those golden cherubim. Oh, Benedict would make a quite an interesting connection between the tabernacle, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and that icon of the resurrection. He would say that, you know, reminding us what St. Paul talks about is that, that Christ himself is the place of atonement, is the place for the forgiveness of sins, is the place that God speaks to his people. And so he's standing not just on the doors of Hades, which yes, that represents, but he also says it represents the mercy seat, the copper over the play, over the Ark of the Covenant. So now, instead of having well, an invisible God flanked by invisible angels, you have a visible God in the flesh flanked by the visible. 
those he raised. And from this icon, we get the light that sheds upon every other icon that we have and every action that we do. Because of the incarnate Word of God. There is the iconoclast that says that we could not have an icon of anybody, an image of anything. The fathers came together and says, no, that is not correct. Because he's been seen and he's been touched, we can describe him. And so we see in the light of this icon, the light of the one who is, has a face, the one that we heard in the second gospel reading, he was... You know, you and I, Father, are one. And Jesus would say elsewhere, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I have a God that I can see. And through the Eucharist, a God I can touch, I can taste. He did this so He could be close to us. To be in communion with us. And the light that comes from the icon of the resurrection, and when we think of the icon of the resurrection, you have to think of all the entire Paschal mystery put together. You know, we have them in slideshows, if you will. But they're actually all these put together into one. Because with God, there's no beginning, middle, or end. We have that in our own life, but not Him. It's all one. Just like as a Byzantine, when they, we talk about, when I talk about baptism, I'm not just talking about being immersed in water. I'm talking the whole rite of initiation. Baptism, chrismation, and the Eucharist. So when we say the resurrection, we're talking the whole Paschal mystery. And the light of the reality of this kind then sheds light onto everything else around us. And we would learn through experience the teachings of the fathers, that when we venerate, we're not venerating pigment and paint, we're venerating the one who is depicted. We're not worshiping the wood, we're not worshiping the paint or the canvas. The theology got so strong that it became almost, the icon came almost to the point of a sacrament. It wasn't a sacrament, but it had that kind of weight. Because it conveyed the presence of Christ. And this is carried on the way through down to us today. Then in our Byzantine liturgies, we have to have icons of at least our Lord and our Lady to celebrate the divine liturgy. Unless, of course, you're in a persecution and they're not, you cannot be had. But it sounds like most of the time they were able to sneak something in. We can see the weight and the value that has come through history just in our recent COVID experience. In the West, they have developed the, the, this, the, this theme and this the spending you know, time with God in the Blessed Sacrament. The East doesn't have that. For us, the sacrament is we have to grind. It's meant to eat. But we spend and commune with God outside of that sacrament with the icons. Case in point, when the COVID hit, what was happening in the United States and some other places in the Western countries? Bishops were taking the blessed sacrament and they were blessing the cities, right? 
In the Orthodox countries, what were they doing? They were taking holy icons, miracle-working icons, and they were flying them above the city and driving them and through the towns and blessing with the icons. So incorporated is the icon to us, making present the one visible. Not just history, it's not just history that's being depicted, but the presence of that history now. And so icons are very near and dear to us. And they reveal a truth that the Word of God became flesh and He walked among us and He was touched and He touched and He ate and He wept and He spent time with people before and after His passion and resurrection. And so with our holy icons, we continue to give thanks for the fathers that defended how proper and right it was to venerate, to have them in our homes. I remember sharing with you some weeks ago about St. Paisius of Mount Athos. He had an icon of Our Lady, <coughs> excuse me, St. Seraphim of Serov, an icon of Our Lady of Tenderness. And he prayed before her always. And from time to time, she would visit him through that icon. When we come before icons, we're not seeking visions. We're just seeking to be in the presence of the one depicted. And so, we stand before the icon. And we look until the icon starts looking back. Until we realize that the one we're standing before is right before us. Yes, it's a window into heaven, but it's more than that. It's making the reality of what's depicted present to you and I. I find it quite striking, quite interesting, in the few Roman churches that I've been in, that icons seem to be coming back in place of statuary. I don't know why, it's just an observation. But there's something about an icon that is different than a statue. It conveys a presence unique in and of itself. And an icon is not to present just a picture, a photograph of something. It should be transfigured. It should always be pointing to where we're heading, to our own resurrection, to our own transfiguration, to our own time in the heavenly kingdom that is to come. So when you go home, remind yourself that the icons are not just pretty pictures to decorate with. They are holy. And they're meant to be set in an appropriate place where they can be venerated. So that when you walk across the room and pass the corner of your prayer corner, or a particular spot that's special to you on the wall that you have an icon of Our Lady or Lord or one of the saints, you start making the sign of the cross every time you pass by because you realize, you feel, you experience the presence of that one. And this is what 
we're reminded of. That we're not losing our mind. That it's right and just to properly venerate an icon. It was defended at the cost of many lives. And the defamation of many great names. But its truth rang out. And the veneration of icons has stood the test of time. We have them in our churches. We have them in our homes. We take them when we travel and put to a hotel room and set it up next to our bed. We carry them around our neck because they convey the presence of the one depicted. They, our Lord, our Lady, want to be close to you and want you to experience how close they are. It's not magic. It's not make-believe. It's the reality of the gift that God has given us through the incarnation of his son.